Hello and welcome to our podcast called Makuru Environmental Adventures. <laughs> it's really nice to have you here and today we are going to dive into the environmental world with you. And I'm very excited to welcome Dr. Hawking Hawkins here. You can you can just call me John. That's okay, fine no, as well. John. That's absolutely fine. All right. <laughs> so if you could just give like a short introduction of yourself, what do you do or Yeah, sure. So uh, <laughs> my name's John Hawkins. I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Earth and Environmental Science here at the University of Pennsylvania. Um, my primary research interest is water chemistry okay. or water quality. Mm -hmm. um, I'm kind of maybe a little bit more unique than most in that most of my research is done in polar and alpine regions. Awesome. So I work mostly in, in places like Greenland or Svalbard, yeah. <laughs> uh, Patagonia, the Himalayas. Um, Regions that I guess you would call fairly pristine compared yeah. to most of the most of the rest of the world. Yeah, that's exciting. But I don't think anywhere is really pristine anymore. But yeah, you know. yeah, that's exciting. So uh, you're from the UK, right? Or I'm from the UK. Yeah, I grew up yeah. just outside London. So what brought you here to Japan? What got you here in the US? Oh, <laughs> a long, complicated road of jobs. <laughs> um, I first came to the US in 2018. Um, okay. I had a fellowship that was uh, funded by the European Research Council. Um, and they paid actually they paid for me to come to the US for awesome. a couple of years. Yeah. Uh, then I, I met my wife um, and I wasn't allowed to leave. So, <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> she then became my wife and then I wasn't allowed to leave. Awesome. And, then, and then we had a child recently and I'm definitely not allowed to leave now. Um, <laughs> yeah, so I, nice. I was in Florida originally and then I got a, a position here at, at Penn. Awesome. That's great. Congratulations on that. Thank you. So uh, going more into like the research side or what do you do professionally? Is so considering the cl global climate change issues nowadays, how can you say like break break down for our listeners how your research on water or melted ice is connected to the whole global climate change issue, or like how would you try to explain it in simple terms? Yeah, big question. Um, <laughs> so I always think of as glaciers and ice sheets as um, the barometers of climate mm -hmm. change. They respond very quickly. Uh, in geological terms anyway, yeah. they respond pretty quickly <laughs> to changes in temperature and precipitation. So the waxing and waning of ice sheets and glaciers is a very good indicator of what's happening with the global climate generally. Yeah. Um, and most people are interested in glaciers and ice sheets from a physical perspective, I would say. They're interested in things like sea level rise. They're interested in things like albedo, which is the reflectivity of yeah. ice and how that's changing. Um, my spin on it is slightly different. Um, and that I'm interested in the the chemistry and the biology of the ice um, and how that relates to the cycling of elements through Earth's system. Um, and it's a really interesting location to go to, particularly in an era of climate change, because these environments are changing very, very quickly. Yeah. Um, and they're changing decadally very, very quickly. So we can almost track the the implications of increased melting of ice on things like the transport of elements through the Earth system, on things like... Um, the response of ecosystems yeah. to increasing amounts of meltwater being flushed from ice. Um, and that can have pretty big consequences on a, on a regional um, scale because all this fresh water is being dumped into the ocean. And that's either good or bad for biology yeah. in the ocean, depending on where you are and the context of where the, where the meltwater is coming from. Um, and that's either good or bad for things like fisheries. It's good or bad for things like, you know, ecosystems. And by that, I'm talking about like biodiversity. Um, 
And it's sometimes it's quite hard to contextualize that if you're kind of living in somewhere like Philadelphia because it's quite yeah. far away. Yeah. <laughs> but these regions do have like global consequences, not just for sea level rise, but also you know where our food comes from, how productive our ecosystems are, how productive our fisheries are. So I'm trying to link in my research to those kind of bigger questions. Yeah, that's awesome. Good to know. And um, any exciting stories or anything that brought you to these specific topics or why do you do what you do so like what brought you to this specific Grisha theme oh it's all chance and happenstance I think for, <laughs> for, for me but um I think it was you know when I was an undergrad I had um some great professors who taught in this kind of field um and they really perked my interest um I did some undergraduate field work in uh, the European Alps, in, in oh, glaciers in the European Alps, which is pretty yeah. cool, but also quite depressing because most of those glaciers yeah. have, have retreated by quite a large amount in the last couple of decades. Um, but that got me really interested in field work. Uh, and I just thought it was so unique and such an interesting spin on research yeah. uh, and so <laughs> much stuff that we didn't know because most of these environments are, are very poorly understood because they're very difficult to get to um that it kind of snowballed there for me no yeah. pun intended um <laughs> and then I, I found myself um as a as a research assistant a couple of years later after my undergrad uh in Svalbard which is an island archipelago yeah um, 300 miles north of Norway in the Arctic in the Arctic Circle uh, and I spent three and a half months there helping out a researcher um and and loved it and found it very interesting and then I decided to pursue a PhD in the similar similar kind of theme Awesome. Yeah, I, I myself been to the Arctic Circle, the oh, nice. north of Norway. Oh, nice. It's a, it's like a small city called Tromsø. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, yeah. I actually have, uh, we're maybe getting a bit off topic here, but I have an adjunct professor position at Tromsø University. Really? Yeah. That's great. So I I've, go there fairly regularly. I have been to Tromsø University oh, when okay. I was there. So it oh, was nice. like in March, I think. Yeah, for a couple of weeks. It was, Very cool. Yeah. It was yeah. really exciting. <laughs> yeah, it's a beautiful place, Tromsø. It is, it is. So, Very um, remote. Yeah. But, yeah, and we were able beautiful. to catch the Northern Lights, so it was definitely oh, worth it. <laughs> fantastic. I haven't actually been there in the winter yet. I've only been really? in the summer, so oh. <laughs> I've never seen the Northern Lights in Tromsø. Uh, so you hopefully you'll have also a chance to visit. Um, like, sometime yeah, hopefully, hopefully. Yeah. Yeah, I'm hoping to take my sabbatical in Tromsø, so maybe, <laughs> maybe then. Yeah, of course. So as you said, so like your research and your work took you some some extreme places, to Himalayas, to Patagonia, to the Arctic, so... Any exciting stories or any adventures that you had there? Oh, lots of exciting stories. I'm not <laughs> yeah. sure how many I could mention on a podcast, but I mean, <laughs> I, I mean, we, we do. I will speak quite generally, but we do quite remote field work. So, um, uh, UK science is known as kind of like belt and braces kind of science, and that yeah. we're not we're trying to do a lot on not very much money. Yeah, and that was kind of my background. So um, my early PhD days were camping in front of the green ice sheet. Um, for a couple of months at a time, yeah. uh, living off of tin food and sometimes living off of tin food that oh. had overwintered a couple of seasons. Yeah. So it was always interesting from a food perspective and trying to get, you know, uh, creative with camp cuisine when you're trying to eat like a, a tin of carrots that have been there for two <laughs> years and freeze thawed a couple of times. That's um, adventurous too, I mean. <laughs> it's adventurous, it's... yeah. Yeah, it's adventurous. It's um, it's, it's a beautiful environment, but when you're there for three months, the, the beauty yeah. kind of becomes <laughs> very common and yeah. then, you're, then, then you're just worried about the food <laughs> you're going to get in the next meal and also you're worried about the mosquitoes that are going to yeah. attack you when you get out of the tent. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's enjoyable, but it is difficult life. Yeah. So... When you go, when you go to those extreme places for like a long period of time, 
if you mind me asking, so like how your family reacts if you leave them for that long of a time or your kids, is it exciting or like how does it go? It's getting more and more <laughs> difficult now. Yeah. So my, my daughter is only four months old. Okay. So I've never had to go away yet yeah. for a long period of time um, while she's been here. Um, and it definitely is going to um, have an impact on how long I can go yeah. away for. I can't do three month field seasons anymore. <laughs> yeah. um, I have PhD students and postdoctoral um, researchers who go out and do the majority of the field work. And I'm like the typical PI or principal investigator that, that turns up for two weeks and eats yeah. all the nice food and then leaves. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's getting more and more difficult these days. But a lot of these environments are, are very far away, as you know, as you can imagine. Um, particularly if you go to places like Antarctica, that it that it can take a week to get there and yeah. a week to get back, then, and then you're you're away for at least two weeks, and then you've actually got to do some work there. So it turns into a month or two months quite easily. Um, and I'm just yeah. having to be a bit more disciplined now with what I can do. Um, particularly as having a, a young family is quite yeah quite a lot of work. <laughs> that's understandable. Yeah, that's a long period of time to just miss your family. Yeah. So and then like uh, so the question afterwards is gonna sound like uh, what like all the people can do to contribute a bit more to what's going on with the climate or how they can contribute to the climate change. But before jumping into that, I would also like you to just tell us more like uh, what have you done like on the collaboration side or if you collaborated with any organizations or any initiatives that helped you to achieve a lot or like is there any initiatives that people also can join if they're interested in specific themes or so you, you, do you mean like climate initiatives yeah so yeah, yeah so my work doesn't really have me collaborating with specific specific um initiatives or specific initiatives i should say um yeah. per se but the but there's a lot of you know very worthy organizations out there to get involved with and i think the best thing to do is get involved at a local level to begin with things like what you're doing right yeah. now things at penn get involved with you know environment organizations at penn and try and um try and make change or force change on campus yeah for a start i think that's the best thing you can do as an individual particularly as a student at penn um there's a there's a lot of other you know um organizations out there that are kind of national or international scale and sure look at those as well but i think you know change has to start at home first particularly from an individual level um before you start getting involved in some of those big organizations um most of my work is funded by the national science foundation okay um and uh you know, the National Science Foundation, for good reasons, wants you to connect your work to broader impacts. Uh, and so I, I have been involved in some local schools. Um, and last summer, we had um, a, a school teacher join us from Chester, Chester County, or Chester City as well. Um, and she joined us on field work for three weeks to, you know, get involved with some okay. hands on research <laughs> and also have a have a look at what the kind of day to day yeah. of a research is like. Um, and take that back with her and hopefully translate that to some lesson plans with her students. And um, we're hoping to be very involved with that school um, and, and hopefully get into that school and meet the students in person. Yeah. Hopefully share some of our experiences with them. It's one of the surprising things for me anyway, for, for that high school and I'm sure um, other high schools in this area is that a lot of students don't really understand climate change. Yeah. and certainly don't understand like what polar environments are like and why they're important and why they're unique. Um, and I think we need to, to go out and, you know, help educate these, these young people because they're the ones who are going to be making the decisions in, yeah. the, in the next few decades. Yeah. Yeah. 
exciting. So what would you say like the regular folk, folks or like the people who aren't really interested in the environmental sciences or wouldn't like to get involved more seriously? What do, what would you say are some simple steps they can do to just help the planet? Mm, yeah, this is the trillion dollar question, really. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, it's it's difficult, and I I battle with this on quite a regular basis in the way that I, you know, I'm thinking, and you know, ultimately the big change has to come down to kind of like institutional change, and what mm. I mean by that is like it's really governmental initiatives and international initiatives that are going to lead to the biggest changes. But it doesn't necessarily mean as an individual you can't do anything. Um, I always say like the biggest impact you can have as an individual when it comes to climate is your diet because you can change your diet tomorrow if you want to. Next yeah. time you go to the store, you can make very um, very conscious de decisions about what you buy off the shelf. And this is going to be very unpopular. And, you know, it comes from someone who <laughs> eats meat on occasion, but um, meat eating is the biggest impact of, of our diet on the climate, particularly red meats, particularly things like um, like beef. Um, both on a kind of land use scale and on a carbon emissions scale. Um, it's the worst thing you can do pretty much <laughs> from an individual, apart from driving around in like a Hummer or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's the worst thing you can do. So the, the biggest impact you can make as an individual from today to tomorrow is change the way you eat and be very conscious about that. Think about where your food is coming from. Um, think about how many animal products you're consuming and the impact that has on the environment and on land use in, in the US, but also abroad. You know, we're buying animal products from places like Brazil where they're cutting down regions of the Amazon yeah. um, to have cattle grazed there. Uh, so we're removing carbon storage and we're putting something in there that is, you know, essentially burping and farting methane. Yeah. So um, that's the biggest individual impact you can make. But then there's other things like, you know, recycling, reducing your consumption of products is a really important one. Thinking about how often you're replacing your phone, thinking about what you're doing to recycle your phone, thinking about which companies you decide to put your money, your dollar into. Like we all have credit cards or debit cards, and that's a very powerful weapon to use when it comes to consumption and how these companies decide to build their products, ship their products, market their products. Um, so yeah, small small things, but like yeah. together, if we can all do it, then they can make quite a big difference. Yeah, that was That's a quite interesting approach to it, so... Yeah, well, nice. I'm, I'm teaching the uh, environmental science intro to environmental science course. So we talk ab about a lot of these things from like, you know, waste yeah. all the way up to climate change. And yeah. these are some of the points that come up in class and that we discuss. Yeah. Um, so I'm trying to translate some of those. <laughs> I guess I'm cheating a little <laughs> yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's working. <laughs> you know, the, I think the, uh, one of the, the most important things you can do is not give, give up as well. Um, yeah. and that's something that Michael Mann, who's in our department as well, talks about a lot and is talking about a lot at the moment. Um, you know, it's, it's a, a real thing for young people in particular is this idea that like, there's nothing they can do anymore and it's all too late. And that's definitely not the case. And there's plenty that can be done still. Um, and you really have to motivate yourself to help enact that change. Um, and there's plenty to play for. As we've seen with the recent, recent COP as well, COP28 are we on now? Yeah. You know, there's plenty to play for in the coming decades. Um, will we hit, hit 1.5 degrees of warming? I think almost certainly now, but we've got to do our absolute best to keep it below two degrees of warming. Of course, yeah. And, you know, that's still very much to play for. So, good answer. So, 
you uh, you mentioned about the environmental education so i would the question is what do you think like how big of a role environmental education plays in actually like environmental awareness and making sure like people know how to deal with the planet and how do you think specifically the us does that job with the schools the high schools and oh. the universities well you know i i, I don't the the cop out here is that I'm gonna, yeah. <laughs> gonna give yeah. you is that I don't know a huge amount about the US yeah. education system below or like just overall, tertiary overall, education. Like, yeah. But I would say, you know, my my bias is towards Penn. Um I would say at Penn not every student is particularly interested in environmental science yeah. or the environment. Um, which is a shame. I think people have some concern. I think students have some concern about it. Um, but something I come across in my exam in my class quite often is like why is this important why am i being made to learn this and it fulfills credits that, and that's honestly why 60 of the students are there they're, they're there to fulfill their credits which is a shame because i think environmental science is a really important subject because it's directly relevant to our day-to-day -day lives and our quality of our lives and it's going to become even more relevant in the coming decades when things like sea level rise and um, pollution really start to kick in and hit home in many respects So um, I think we could do better. Um, it's a shame that Penn, that our, the environmental science department is only 10 faculty. So it's very small at Penn uh, compared to a lot of other institutions. Um, but I think at an institutional level, like a, in, in the university education system, I think the US is extremely strong in environmental science research. And I think relatively well funded as well compared to many other countries in environmental yeah. research and earth science research. Uh, and that's partly why I'm here. Um, is because the funding is is much better in the US than a lot of other places like the UK. Um, so does that, that does that answer some of yeah, your yeah, questions? Yeah, definitely, like, definitely, I, and yeah. like honestly, I I don't know too much about like high school level. I know that environmental science exists there. My interactions with the teacher that joined us um, last summer on field work were a, a little bit more depressing, and that she would often talk about how little the students knew, like I, I mentioned about yeah. things like climate change and what they can do. Um, And, you know, that's to be understood, really, because she comes from a, a school where poverty levels are very, very high. Um, people of color, you know, is very high percentage in Chester as well. And there's, you know, a real kind of environment of racism around that. But also these students just don't get out of Chester. They're not visiting these regions. They're not seeing the differences. So, you know, how would they know? And they have like more pressing needs, like you know, what their family is going to put on the table for dinner rather than like, What's the temperature going to be in 30 years time? Um, and how, how is that more important to me than, you know, being able to eat for the next week? Yeah. So it's, it's sometimes difficult coming from like a level where we're very comfortable at Penn. And most of us are, you know, relatively well off and that we can, we don't have to worry about like what we're going to eat for dinner. Um, and we can worry about things like what's the temperature going to be like in 30 years time. So we come from quite a privileged position. I think sometimes that's difficult to, um to to it's difficult for us to to um to acknowledge sometimes yeah so if you as you said that so what would you say so in other places where the concerns are more like uh more everyday so people worry about what they can eat today or what they can wear what they should do how how do you think it's just a theoretical question so how how do you think they should approach those questions considering the climate change issues are pretty high there too mm -hmm. so how would you say or the big countries like us what they can do to also help them out or 
Yeah, sure. So I think I think one thing is making um, like environmental science more relatable to their kind of day to day, like talking about if they're worried about what, what they're going to eat and how they're going to eat, then you can talk about, well, in you know, 20 years time when the you know, some regions, we won't be able to grow this kind of food or, you know, like land use might have to change. And, you know, what's that going to do to the price of things like, I don't know, corn or whatever it is, trying to make things a bit more relatable to them. Um, I, I was at a, a pen event today, actually, called, called Pen uh, One Health, um, which is really interesting. And they talked a lot about um, students uh, you know, being worried, particularly in Philadelphia, more worried about things like gun crime or crime in general. Um, but there's, you know, there's evidence to suggest that during like heat waves, gun crime goes up. So, and that's a really tangible thing to talk about to the students because if they're worried about gun crime, then they should be more worried about gun crime in a warming climate because we have evidence to suggest that climate change can lead to more, uh, more crime or more gun crime in particular. Um, so I think making it more applicable to their kind of day-to-day living is good. I think also from like a, from the perspective of someone who's working in science, um, I'd like to think that me, like exposing them to people like me will help. And they like understand that these, these people exist that do this kind of research. And wow, isn't it interesting research? Or wow, aren't these places really interesting and beautiful? And shouldn't we like be, be preserving them? Um, or exposing these students to like a world in which they would otherwise not be exposed i think is probably quite a powerful thing as well yeah definitely and also uh, so going back to your adventures going back to your adventures to some remote places yeah. so like how would you say the climate there or the research or the adventures or everything you have to go there kind of connects or why is it important to also going back for example to philly how can it also be important for philly just by doing research there, figuring out how the how everything works. Yeah, I guess that is quite an abstract concept in many ways, um, and it is difficult to directly communicate why am I going to you know the Arctic to do my research rather than than in Philadelphia. And I'll start with saying like we are also doing research at a more local level. We're very mm -hmm. interested in. Um, the chemistry of the Schuylkill River, for example, and we're looking at nutrients in the Schuylkill River and how they affect things like um, uh, algal productivity in the Schuylkill and water quality in the Schuylkill more generally. Um, but going to the Arctic and doing this kind of work, I think it's really thinking about like the, the front lines of climate change, the places that are, that are changing most quickly that we have to understand um, and communicating that on a local level. Uh, so if we're gonna if we're gonna figure out the places that are gonna be hit hardest and first, we have to go to these places that are on the front line of climate change, like the Arctic, that are warming three or four times faster than you know more temperate um, zones on Earth, uh, where the environment is literally changing on a year to year basis. Um, you don't necessarily see that in Philadelphia, and you know these are these are you know what happens in the Arctic or in the Antarctic doesn't stay there. Like mm -hmm. things like sea level rise are very real for coastal communities of, um, of the United States. Things like fisheries are very real for the price of fish um, and the health of, of fisheries and, you know, where we're going to be able to get our seafood from in the, in the future. And for just general kind of like political and economic stability as well. You know, the, the Arctic is changing. The U.S. has a lot of territory in the Arctic. Um, how that change drives things like you know, political agreements or disagreements yeah, is going to be yeah. very real as well. So, 
you know, even though my specific area of research might not seem um, that relatable to some people, there are definitely components in there that they could relate to, hopefully. Awesome, definitely. And so we talked about that the, you mentioned that you think that the biggest change should come to, for, from the government, from the policy level. So uh, how would you think, like, breaking down to the percentages? I, I know it might, might, might sound like a bit specific or just like theoretical. How would you think or how would you compare the role of every individual uh, to the role of government? Like, if or... So, like, like how would you say, yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> I'll try to maybe, like, phrase it correctly. So, how would you say if, let's say, every single individual wanted to do some kind of change, how would that affect the government's decisions? And do the people now do the work that needs to be done to maybe convince the government to do more some more practical changes on the environmental side? Or Yeah, so... Um... That's a very complicated answer <laughs> that takes a, a lot of time and many people to, yeah. to, yeah, to yeah, properly so. answer. But um, I guess I'll start with saying that in the United States and in many you know, Western countries, um, we're in the privileged position of being able to elect our government every four to five years. And ultimately, it is the government that can have most influence on things like policy that comes to like energy generation Definitely. or recycling or waste disposal. So we are in a privileged position that every five years we can judge our government based on their previous record and we can select the people or parties that most align with our values. And if we value things like climate highly, then we should elect people who who um, who also kind of value climate highly. Uh, and we can do that every four or five years in places like the United States. And we should think very carefully about that going forward, particularly as there's such a big election next year. And I'm not going to get myself into any more trouble by saying <laughs> anything else other than that. But like, don't believe what politicians tell you. Yeah. You know, even <laughs> if they say it in quite a compelling way, don't believe them. Uh, many of them don't have environmental science degrees. Uh, and many of them are in the pockets of, you know, yeah. <laughs> heavy industry um, where um, fossil fuels are very important and very profitable. Um so think about that carefully because that is the biggest change you could en enact, right, every four or five years. The flip side of that is that our government does change every four or five years, which means that sometimes they can be very short-sighted mm -hmm. um, because they're just looking for, for the next election cycle. So some of the changes um, that they make aren't necessarily based on like 20, 30 years time when most of these politicians are going to be dead, to be honest, like if the average Asian in the Senate is what, like 65, then in 30 years time, almost all of them are going to be, yeah. you know, <laughs> won't be here anymore. Um, so that's a, that's another flip side, right? Is that, you know, that like m some parties aren't looking 30 years into the future. They're looking at short-term gains mm -hmm. and they're looking at what can make them the most money, I think. Yeah. That's my personal <laughs> opinion. That's not Penn's opinion. That's my personal <laughs> opinion. You have to be very careful these days about what you say. Um, but yeah, so I think we're in a privileged position. Um, on the flip side, you know, countries that don't have free and fair elections or who have more long term, um, I'm going to put this in very commas, stable governments uh, can make very large changes um, that could be beneficial for mm. the environment. Um, and I think a country, big countries like China, you know, if China doesn't do anything, then we're not going to get anywhere because it's yeah. 1.5 billion people. It's, you know, a huge surface area. It's like a huge economic power. 
Um, if they decide they're not going to do anything, then we're not going to get very far. But luckily, they, they have decided to plan for the future and they are uh, investing a lot of money into things like solar technology and wind technology. So there's there's definitely some, you know, there's some light at the end of the tunnel in many respects. Mm. Um, but I'm not I'm not saying like China's doing it all perfectly. <laughs> they're not doing it all perfectly, obviously. Uh, and there's there's things that the United States is doing very well, you know, in the last few years and the current administration, a lot of money has been pledged to try and build infrastructure that can accommodate renewable energies and try and invest in renewable energies. And that could be like transportation infrastructure from like investing mm-hmm. in electric car production, which isn't perfect, but like it's better than fossil fuel powered cars. Um, to like you know, improvements in the electrical grid to enable like more renewable power to feed onto the electrical grid. And that's billions of dollars worth of investment and that's that's sorely needed. But we need, we unfortunately need billions of dollars more yeah. of investment. Uh, but when you compare that to the subsidies for the fossil wind fuel industry, which total more than a Definitely. trillion dollars a year, <laughs> it kind of looks like small fish really, or small fry, I should say. Um, so it looks like pretty money, pretty well spent. Um, and particularly when you look at renewable energies like solar and wind power, which can be cheaper than fossil fuel power now per gigawatt hour of energy produced. Mm-hmm. That was another thing. A great answer. A great answer. <laughs> and so uh, I would also like to touch upon the company side, uh, as I would I would think they're more stable, or their policies or everything they do can be more stable, as the leadership doesn't change that much. Mm-hmm. So. How would you also like maybe from a personal experience or what you have seen? How would you say from the company side? Uh, how is their work like? Import is it important really for the climate change issues or just environmental wise? Or how would you think it can be improved? Yeah, I should. I, I'm going to preface this with saying that like I, I'm definitely not an expert in this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm yeah. just talking from personal experience yeah. mostly. Um, but I I I think most companies. know that this is a big issue Mm -hmm. and i think if you um talk to the ceos of like major corporations they would definitely not be climate change deniers and if they're planning for the next 10 20 years worth of growth this would be something in the back of their mind and you can see that in places like the insurance industry because some insurers will not insure households in florida anymore because the risk of hurricanes are like strength mainly due to climate change has become so grand that they're that it's not a good investment anymore, uh, and you know these these companies are paying hundreds of millions of dollars to consultancies to figure out what's going to be happening in fifty years time when it comes to climate change, so they can adequately prepare their portfolio to minimize risk. Yeah. So they're all about risk because that's all about profit. So these companies very much know that this is going to be a big risk in the future decades, and I think a lot of them are planning for that. Um, now the difficulty comes along when you still have a lot of money invested in things like fossil fuel industry. And, um, when you have like big companies that, uh, have to answer to shareholders. Um, and so things like being frugal with their money is, is an important thing as well. And I think that's where, um, a lot of difficulty comes in with change in corporations is that there, it's not just one person making the decision that ultimately answerable to their shareholders who expect to see a profit mm-hmm. and that's a short-term aim right that's not like i don't want to see profit in 10 years time i want to see profit this year yeah. and what's going to be the most pro- profitable thing to do this year might not be the most you know environmentally friendly thing or the most sustainable Definitely, thing to do yeah um 
and you know there's bad actors as well in this as well <laughs> you know it's uh it's difficult like, i was talking with my um class uh last week on plastic waste um and we went back to a, a an advert from oh keep america beautiful i think it is the body keep america beautiful um which was founded by the ceos of plastic companies yeah. <laughs> um and they released this advert basically telling people not to create plastic waste or to recycle plastics um, basically, and this is, you know, continues, this isn't like yeah. a new thing. This is, this is going back 30, 40 years though, when it started. Um, and this is a way of companies, um, shifting the responsibility of things like waste production or like energy generation onto the consumer and basically saying, this isn't our <laughs> fault that there, there's all this plastic waste around. This is your fault. There's all this plastic yeah, waste around. Like, yeah. So you need to sort it out by recycling. <laughs> um, yeah. and, they, and they don't include in things in that, like how difficult it is to actually recycle plastics and the fact that you can't really recycle some plastics or that plastics degrade mm -hmm. every time you recycle them. Um, but they just make it seem like it's your issue, not their yeah. issue. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's complicated. Um, and it gets, it's complicated at, at a governmental level and it's complicated at, at a, um, at a corporate level. Yeah. But again, I'm going to say I'm not an expert in this, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I'm sure there's companies that are doing really good jobs sure, yeah. and investing hard into things like more sustainable technologies or, you know, more recyclable phones. Yeah. Um, because we have to, because resources mm -hmm. are, are running out in many cases, things like, you know, Iridium, which is an element goes into, um, phone screen production. I think there's only about a decade's worth of known reserves for Iridium left. So if you're a phone producer, you best be sure that you know how to recycle iridium from your current <laughs> phones because you can't produce any more in 10 years time unless we find out a, a, an alternative for iridium in, in phone screens. So, um, and I think a lot of companies do know about this and I think there is, you know, change probably behind the scenes that we don't always see. I hope so anyway. Definitely, um, yeah, I agree with you. So on more like another question on the companies or the product side, I, uh, I recently looked up, there was a research done by I think it was by the, by the Wharton School, by the cooperation with the environmental side. There was It was just a small research uh, where they were asking people, would they care if the companies or the products that they're buying, the companies are doing good job on the environmental side or how their, let's say, green brand image looks like? Yeah. More on the personal side, do you, do you take into account that or would you will to pay a bit more to buy a product from a company that invests more on the environmental field or yeah so i'm in a in a privileged position that i can afford to Definitely. probably pay a little bit more for the products that i buy in order to make them to buy something more sustainable I, you know i have a go at my wife all the time about this because she's <laughs> she's she's uh less i i would say less not concerned she's concerned <laughs> but she you know she uses amazon a lot and she purchases stuff and returns stuff quite a lot which drives me mad, but you know, that's a, that's a marital issue rather than anything else. But <laughs> on a personal level, yeah, I do, every time I buy something, I make quite a conscious decision about what I'm buying. Um, for example, the, the shirt that I'm wearing is from a company called United by Blue, um, who are certified B Corporation. Mm -hmm. And I think it's made from like recycled. It's, there's something eco <laughs> let's about see, it. Let's see. <laughs> let's go. Okay. 40% recycled wool. 20% recycled nylon and 40% wool. So it's, I guess yeah. it's 60% recycled. So that's a good start. And this company like invests in taking waste out of the ocean as well. So that makes me feel a little bit better. 
Yeah, I couldn't say the same about mine. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm also like, I'm not trying to judge people because, you know, I am in, I, I, I'm receiving a salary, unlike yeah. many students yeah. who are trying to, you know, they're paying a lot for their education and also trying to make make means when it comes to buying stuff. Um, but yeah, I, I, try and, I try and take that into account for sure. It's not always that easy to do, to be honest. Mm. Um, and there's definitely something called greenwashing going on yeah. where companies make you think they're being green. But yeah, you know, so it's just it, definitely building just the image and trying to show people. So yeah, that. exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And to, just to make you feel better about yeah. buying something. Um, and you have to be careful about that. But there's, you know, there's only certain you can't really do much about it in some cases mm-hmm. unless you really know everything about the company and what they're selling. Um, and the honest answer is that, you know, the best way to save carbon is to not buy stuff <laughs> that you don't need. <laughs> yeah. So if you have a, if you have a sweater that isn't got like riddled with holes, do you really need to buy a new sweater? You know, I'm not, again, I'm not judging because <laughs> no, like, yeah, I do, no, I do yeah. these things. I buy new clothes <laughs> on occasion. I try not to buy too much and I try to buy it only when I need it. Like, I was walking around with a hole in my um in my jeans for a few months before I bought a new pair of jeans. <laughs> before my wife was like, "You you can't do that <laughs> because what well, if the students see you with this hole in your jeans? It's just going to look awful." <laughs> so I I try and do that, and I do look into things like you know recycling jeans and yeah. things. There are companies that do that for you, um, and repairing jeans as well. Like I think Levi's used to repair jeans. I'm not sure they do anymore, but um, yeah, I think it's important to do. Yeah, I I take some of these green initiatives with a little bit of a pinch of salt awesome yeah awesome yeah i think i think the i think the survey was done like in new york in philly somewhere in downtown so that's why it turned out about 60 65 percent of the people do care okay what yeah. they buy. interesting but i yeah. think the idea i i do think the results will be very different if you go somewhere out, like outside in the country or in some other countries because yeah. we are way more privileged here yeah, um, absolutely. And I guess there's there's also, the, I don't know how they did the survey, but there's also a thing that like, you will tell someone what you think they want to hear. Yeah. So even though 65% of people say they do take it into account, someone might be just telling you that because that's what you that's think what you want, want to, to hear. Yeah. And they don't want to be judged <laughs> yeah, for saying so. like, I don't bother with like reading the label and just <laughs> see whether it's recycled nylon or not. I just buy it. Um, and you know, the in some ways the proof is in the pudding and we're like consuming more than we've ever done in this country yeah um and that is not abating and we have things like black friday where people go absolutely yeah, yeah. nuts to get a new tv to replace that old tv that's like two years old um and no matter what people say their actions speak a little bit louder than words and actually the actions at the moment aren't fantastic yeah um but it does show it does show you that like companies should be interested in in what people even if people just saying things because they think it's what other people want to hear obviously there's like interest in making things more sustainable or more green sure yeah definitely and also um let me phrase this right so uh there are many like small environmental initiatives organizations out there so uh how would you think like uh the importance of their role or uh, so most of them just do maybe in the schools or any clubs, just environmental clubs, or they do all sorts of stuff. How would you think? Like, uh, I would say uh, from my personal pers- perspective, I would say it's more it's more valuable for the people that are inside the club. It just it just gives more experience, more maybe trying to build up some more awareness. Yeah. How would you think like their importance is or how d- important they are? 
Um, yeah, I think small organizations are really important in spreading um, the word and communicating to the public. And uh, yeah, I, yeah, again, it's not something that I know too yeah, much yeah, about, yeah. especially in Philadelphia. <laughs> and I wish I knew a little bit more about this in Philadelphia and hopefully I will in the, in the years to come. But like these kind of organizations are very important at communicating climate change science to like the average everyday person. And they're mm -hmm. very important in uh, gathering people together as well and creating community, which is, yeah, which is, uh, you know, if nothing else, that's an important thing. Yeah. And so about gathering people about this, like, let's say teamwork around the environmental issues. So on the, on the global level, we mentioned about the China and the US, like if US does everything and China doesn't do anything, it mm. wouldn't work out. Mm. So how would you how would you rate like uh, the importance of the global cooperation in these things? Mm. And do you think anything can work out if only like one side of the countries or one side of the things work on it and the other doesn't? Yeah. You should get Michael Mann on this podcast. Yeah. But <laughs> <laughs> he's a busy man. But um <laughs> Uh, yeah, hugely important, and we won't get anywhere without international cooperation. But it's it's the hardest thing is international cooperation when you have so many different uh, countries coming together with lots of different um, cultures and ways of thinking and perhaps priorities. Um, and it's very difficult also to tell countries what to do, um, particularly when you're in a position such as like a, a Western country like the US or where I come from, the UK, where our economic growth in the past has been fossil fuel powered mm -hmm. and now all of a sudden we're telling other countries that are growing that they can't use fossil fuels anymore and that's an extreme example but like it's it's a little bit patronizing in some ways mm -hmm. so we have to be careful of that um and we also have to look after the countries that are you know really going to see the biggest impacts like low-lying islands for example some low-lying islands with like half a meter of sea level rise are going to be gone and you're going to have like tens of thousands of displaced populations that are going to need to go somewhere. Uh, and you're going to have whole economies that are going to need to go somewhere. Um, so um, we need to come together as an international community to figure that out. And that's why things like COP are really important. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's why COP is, you know, in the news a lot at the moment because it's going on. But also yeah. because like we need to come to some kind of agreement on this because otherwise, you know, everything else is yeah is you know <laughs> it, it isn't really important if there's no international agreement um and you know the, the thing the issue i have with cop though is that, that these all seem to be fairly soft agreements um and none of them are legally binding it's very difficult mm -hmm. to do internationally but at, le at least it's some kind of intention yeah better yes. than nothing <laughs> sure so we are we are coming to the end, and uh, I wanted to know like if there is anything that you would like to share at the end, or for our listeners, or any call to action, or anything that you would want to share at the end. Well, I'd I'd like to say that um, you know if you're interested in environmental science and you're interested in the kind of themes that we've been talking about, um, do reach out to the Department of Earth and Environmental Science. We run a lot of really interesting courses. If you're really interested in the science behind this, mm -hmm. which is the most fundamental thing about climate change or about environmental change um look at our courses hopefully you're interested in some of them <laughs> uh from a from my kind of lab perspective we're always looking for undergraduates to come and help work in the lab um doing some chemistry helping run some of the instrumentation and running the samples that we bring back from you know greenland and, and antarctica so if you're interested in getting hands-on research experience 
um, also reach out. Um, look after yourself and look after <laughs> the people around you. Very soft words there, perhaps. <laughs> but, and, you know, be very intentional with your decision making, I think. Um, and think about things like your carbon footprint or your ecological footprint when you make decisions. Because uh, even though I've said individual decisions don't matter hugely, they still matter. Yeah. And um, they can spread as well. Awesome. Also, yeah. talk to your family about climate change, <laughs> especially yeah. crazy Uncle Fred. <laughs> <laughs> Very important. <laughs> Very important. <laughs> yeah. So thank you so much. Thank you so much, Dr. Hawkins. Thanks for uh, having me. Or John. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was a great conversation. It was just nice to talk about all of these things. And yeah. So stay tuned for uh, our future podcasts. And yeah. Have fun and be be conscious about how you use everything and yeah, care about the planet. Thank you so much. Thank you. Have a good one.